0: Every year in the fall, in countries all over the world, signs go up advertising a lottery. A lottery whose winners move to the United States, get a green card, and become Americans. And that might sound crazy to you and impossible.
1: Everybody knows. I mean, everybody. The sign is all over on the street, all over, in, in the stoves, in the shops, everywhere you pass, you see it.
0: That's Reuben Henry, who runs an Internet Cafe in Liberia, The lottery application is online, so internet cafes are where lots of people apply. They're the ones who put up the signs advertising it. This year, Ruben says, over a 1,000 people put in applications at his place. He doesn't know any Liberian who hasn't heard of it.
1: Not anyone of except the baby who was born today. If you
0: haven't heard of this lottery, it's probably because you already live here and you don't need it. It's not a scam. It's a real thing. Run by the United States government every year called the Diversity Visa Lottery, or the DV Lottery for short. The idea is to get a more varied group of immigrants from a diversity of countries into our country. In any given year, between 8 and 15 million people apply, with over 100,000 winners.
2: Uh, uh,
1: Some of them are very quiet, and they start to cry.
0: I spoke to this man, Mr. Bala, with an interpreter. He owns a cyber cafe in Sri Lanka. He says he gets about 800 applicants a year at his place, and about 20 winners.
1: Some, according to him, will jump
3: up and down and they, and they just scream and, uh, and so excited. While, while yet the rest will be you know, banging on the walls and just you know screaming their head
1: off and hugging uh, Mr. Bala or anybody who's nearby that they were so happy that they were selected.
0: The way it works, people apply online in October, the winners are randomly chosen, and the results are posted in May. At a cyber cafe in the Congo... When Eric Mwamba told one woman, "God's blessed you; you've won," she kissed him. And
1: I was so embarrassed that uh, uh, since the husband was there, I also ran ran to the husband and hugged the husband. You know, just to to uh, to cool the, the tension because I did not want uh, uh, her husband to think to give. I mean, to have some ideas
0: in Kenya. Mike Abu Abuniwa, had the very first winter in his cyber cafe two years ago. Basically, he just noticed a commotion over at the computers.
1: Shouting, laughing, trying to shake even the guys who were around there. You want it, you want it.
0: Mike told the guy, you're now an American.
1: Hey, You are now an American, you are now an American. You have gone to a land of opportunities and us when you're there. When you leave this country, don't forget about us. That's what I told him.
0: The guy who won that day was not a Kenyan. He was a Somali refugee named Abdi. Abdi Noor. He remembers the moment this way.
2: He sat down at the computer. I put my confirmation number. I put my date of birth and then click submit. There was a few seconds of silence. But then you have been randomly selected. Everybody went nuts. Lifted him up in the air in his
0: chair but Abdi didn't believe it. He asked his friends to put him down and started entering his information into the computer
2: again and again. It's the same answer, the same response. I it, the same response. I realized that one. I walked out with these friends all, you know, shouting behind me, in front of me, you know, holding my hands, shaking me. My heart was bombing. I I was not holding myself together. Moving to America,
0: Sima like Gadandioh. But he didn't know the half of it. Abdi is who our show is about today. And winning the lottery was an especially big deal for Abdi because really more than anybody he knew, Abdi had been obsessed with America since he was little. As a kid growing up in Mogadishu, Somalia, he would go to the movies, which in Mogadishu just meant a TV perched on a table in a shack. And he would bring a pen and paper to watch American films so he could write down any words he didn't know and learn the language better became known to people as the guy who could translate the movie for you stuff would happen on screen and everybody would turn to abdi who would shout out he says he's about to kill that guy he pronounced his english like an american that's why his accent is so amazing when you hear him which led to his nickname that all his friends called him abdi the american that's my name that's my nickname and as he got older he devoted himself to the goal of getting to america not only studying english but also teaching it he did some radio stories in english And you can totally understand why he'd want to leave his country, right? He grew up in Somalia. For years, there was no functioning government. It was rival warlords and militias and just anarchy. Dangerous and violent. There were bombings and attacks from the terrorist group Al-Shabaab, which is affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Abdi says for him, or really for any man in his 20s in Somalia, it's hard to stay out of the fight. You can't just be neutral and go about your life. He tells stories of al-Shabaab members threatening him to join them or else. At one checkpoint on the way to his mom's, they told him, basically, next time you come through here, you better be one of us. So it was that, or join the government forces who were fighting al-Shabaab, or he could flee the country. You know those uh, boats full of people who are trying to cross the Mediterranean to get to Europe, and sometimes they sink and hundreds of people drown? Abdi knows people who have gone on those boats. and know boats like them to escape to Yemen.
2: Yes, I've lost three very good friends and one of these friends had his child uh, less than a year old with his wife. He knew how to swim but he could not swim because his child was, you know, he was trying to to save his child and his wife and then they were caught up in the sea and sharks. They were not the only ones who died there. 75 other Somalis were killed in that journey and uh, that has changed nothing about our decision. That doesn't scare us a lot at all. We know death is there. Several times, Abdi planned to take one of those boats. But
0: he had trouble getting the money together and eventually his mom talked him out of it. So instead, he escaped across the border to Kenya, Somalia and Kenya next to each other. Abdi moved to Nairobi, enrolled in a university, tried twice for a student visa to America, was denied both times. And if he hadn't gotten lucky that day in the cyber cafe, he said he would have been looking again and getting on a boat. Yeah, if I had not
2: won this green card lottery, that was one of my options. I was not afraid to do that. I'm looking forward a life. And to get to that, I will keep trying to the death. The
0: thing about the lottery though, what Abdi learned, is that it does not guarantee you a life in America. In fact, it's just the first step. After you win, you have to wait more than a year Then you show up at an American embassy for an interview, and you have to gather all kinds of paperwork to bring with you. Medical documents and school transcripts and a criminal background check. Everything has to be perfect. Every I dotted. The tiniest mistake means that you can be denied for good. In fact, most years, over half the people who win the lottery never get their visas. They don't make it to America. And right away, after winning the lottery, Abdi got a bad break. The police in Nairobi, Kenya, where he lived, started raiding houses looking to round up all the Somalis like him and kick them out of the country. We have a very unusual day-by-day record of what happened to Abdi because a BBC reporter named Leo Hornack wanted to document this process and started calling Abdi every night. This is one of their very first recordings.
3: Hey, Abdi, can you hear me? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, I can hear you.
3: Are you safe right now, for the moment?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah I'm
3: safe. You sent me a, an email that had me really worried today. Uh, tell yeah, me what happened. it's crazy.
2: I was actually chatting with uh, some of the uh, people in our apartment when these guys... We don't call them the police. We we call them the guys. Uh, out of nowhere, they appear there at the gate and they ask us as all well to raise our hands up. And... Uh, you know, we, we, we were thinking, like, okay, this is the end of it. We're going to go there tonight.
0: By there, he means a place called Kasarani, a giant soccer stadium that Kenyan authorities and police were using as a makeshift jail to hold hundreds of refugees.
2: Like, oh, my God, the next few, few couple of nights, you're going to be spending there in the concentration camp, and then they take you to Mogadishu. And, okay, you're going to miss your lottery... All that things were going through in my mind.
0: This call happened on april seventeenth, twenty fourteen. Abdi had ninety six days to go before his interview at the US Embassy, which would be scheduled for july twenty second. We have started calling him every day. He was worried for him. Like I say, over half the people who win this lottery never make it to the United States. Would Abdi succeed? Over the next three months, he faced a horrifying obstacle course. It's just like one seemingly impossible task after another. At several points, he's afraid for his life. Today, we bring you the story of one of the many people around the world who are desperately trying to make it to America and become one of us. Will Abdi do it? Stay with us. Okay, so you remember where we are. Abdi is about to be taken into custody by the police. Here's Leo Hornack.
3: So here's why the police were raiding Abdi's neighbourhood in Nairobi. Al-Shabaab, the very group Abdi moved to Kenya to escape, have been ramping up terrorist attacks inside Kenya. You may remember one of the biggest ones.
2: The hostage crisis in the upscale Westgate Mall is ongoing. The chaotic scene, now a tense standoff. ABC in
3: September 2013, Al-Shabaab gunmen trapped hundreds of people in a mall for days and killed 67. And the way the Kenyan government responded to these terrorist attacks was the way governments often do in these situations, with a huge crackdown on the community they hold responsible. Al-Shabaab's from Somalia, so they go off to Somali refugees living in Kenya government's trying to clear them out of Kenya's cities and move them to camps in the country or deport them back to Somalia. And in Nairobi, the neighbourhood they target is Abdi's neighbourhood. It's called Eastleigh. It's a dense neighbourhood where many poor Somalis live and where there is some al-Shabaab support. eastleigh has been there for decades. It's known as Little Mogadishu. Abdi lives there with his older brother Hassan in a small room with one bed and a single bathroom for the whole building. So... Back to that phone call on April 17th. The police show up and grab Abdi by the shirt.
2: They just get your collar and hold it so tight and they tell you, come with me, just get into the truck. That's what they said to all of us. It's
3: 96 days till Abdi's interview and Abdi's worried they're going to throw him and his brother into a truck and take them into detention before he can ever get his papers together and leave for America.
2: They threaten you and they try to forcibly take you to the, to the trucks. We we were not going with them. We were saying, "Okay, let's negotiate. I'm not going anywhere. I have legitimate documents. And they were telling us, "Okay, bring out all your documents. What do you have?
3: Abdi pulls out his refugee ID. Officially, that should protect Abdi. It's from the United Nations. Unofficially.
2: He didn't even try to give it a single glance because he knows the shape, he knows the frame of it. And he says, he threw it into my face and he says, you're a refugee, what are you doing here? And they were like, come on, give us whatever you have. That's what one of them said.
3: So that's when the real business okay. starts.
2: Yeah, when the real business starts.
3: A.k.a. the bribes. Abdi, his brother and the neighbours start
2: pooling their cash. In total, I think we gave them more than 80, 80 US dollars. And I had to beg them. Please, I have nothing. This is all I have. You know, I have nothing. I have nothing. This is all I have. Please, you have to take it.
3: And how uh, much does 80 US dollars buy
2: you in Eastleigh? It gives you the best food. It's a pair of uh, jeans, pair of shirts, jacket, all that stuff. It's a lot of money. It's indeed a lot of money.
3: And Abdi, what what happens next? I mean, there's there's no solution, right, to this? This could happen again tomorrow.
2: Um, not even tomorrow. It can happen right now. It can happen tonight. It can, it can happen in the next few minutes. It can happen in the next few hours.
3: Talking to Abdi every day, what I realised was how relentless it is. Every night's another excuse for a crackdown, and the Somalis are sitting ducks,
2: trapped in this one neighbourhood. Most people are indoors today. They're not going to anywhere. They're not coming out of their houses.
3: April 25th, 88 days to Abdi's interview and counting. It's a Friday, which normally would be a busy day in Eastleigh, because it's a Muslim holy day. People take off from work, go shopping, go out to eat, and meet at the mosque for prayers. But not today. Abdi says last week, the police showed up at a nearby mosque, grabbed people as they left prayers, and drove them away in trucks.
2: We're getting um, additional threats from the police, saying that they will intensify the operations and that they they will take more people.
3: So Abdi, what do you think you're going to do today? Will you uh, visit a mosque?
2: No, I will not. I never missed a prayer on Friday. Um, but this one, but this one, never missed, but you never know. Soon, Abdi stops leaving his apartment for anything.
3: He and his brother Hassan essentially go into hiding, locked down in their building. They stop going to school. As the days go by, food begins to run short. Abdi and Hassan pool their supplies with another Somali family on the ground floor of their building. Two women, one a single mother with two small boys, but it's not much... Soon they're down to just tea and sugar and a loaf of bread they're able to get each day from a Kenyan guy who delivers it on his bike. That's what they were living on, tea and bread.
2: Our eyes are turning red and um, the energy is running out. We're looking like pretty skinny.
3: Abdi and Hassan are paying for the tea and bread with money they get from overseas. Years ago, Abdi did some reports for an American public radio show called The Story and a listener reached out wanting to help. She sends them money, not too different from lots of Somali refugees who have family members abroad supporting them. But obviously that kind of help only goes so far.
1: It's a challenging because, you know, you can't even shut your eyes at night and sleep soundly. This
3: is Abdi's older brother, Hassan. He tells me they aren't sleeping. He and Abdi sound the same, by the way. Apparently even their father can't tell them apart on the phone.
1: Any minute you expect something breaking into your house or grabbing you, it's like sleeping with your pants on you know get you know you are always ready you don't know what's yeah. happening you know Wow. feeling home is like wow. you relax you watch a movie something like that. that never happens if you hear another sound outside or some other knocking or uh, you know a small you know kind of sound what was it what's happening are they coming in? <laughs> we are not criminals just we are refugees and, and I never thought being a refugee will, will will make you sound like criminal
3: The kind of police abuses Abdi told me about are well-documented by human rights groups and journalists. Arbitrary arrest, extortion, beatings, forcible deportation, family members separated. It's illegal under international law to send refugees back to a country where their lives could be in danger. The spokesman for Kenya's Ministry of Interior, which oversaw the police raids in Eastleigh, told me they were justified to make the city safe from al-Shabaab but he confirmed that the kind of police corruption Abdi told me about has been a problem for a long time in Kenya. That is a fact, he said. We're not denying that. Abdi and Hassan tell me Eastley's come up with a warning system. The first person to spot the police from his window fires a group text to his friends to say, they're coming your way, so you've got time to hide. Then you pass the message on to your friends, and so on. You can tell a raid started, Hassan says, when you hear all the phones going off. With just three months left till his interview, Abdi still needs to get all the documents required by the U.S. embassy—documents from the police, his school, his doctors—but he can't do any of that because he can't even
2: leave his building. The clock's ticking. This is a long dream. My my hopes were high to to get this thing, but now today, I'm in trouble. Like you know. Right. It's not the Americans who are, who are you know, putting my, my visa into trouble. It's the Kenyans, it's the Kenyan police. And I'm supposed to have my interview here in July. My heart broke, you know. My feelings are very, very bad. I'm feeling like, OK, I'm not, you're not going to make it.
3: April 28th, T-85 days to his interview. Instead of hiding from the police, people are now surrendering. From his window, Abdi sees entire families sitting on the sidewalk with their belongings.
2: Hundreds of families are on the move back to Somalia, ready to show themselves to the police and say, all right, I'm done.
3: I'm done. They don't have any more money to pay off the police. And rather than end up at the football stadium, they'll just go back to Somalia. Even the family on the ground floor, the two women with the young boys are packing up,
2: which really um, broke the heart of my brother and I because that means we're going to be alone here.
3: Did you have any conversations with them about their plans, what they're afraid of? Can you tell me about any conversation you had with any member of that
2: family? What they are telling me? Abdul, what are you doing here? Come on, move. You're dreaming about America that doesn't exist. This is a dream. Come on, boy, you're wrong. That's what they're telling me, Leo. At some point I'm thinking like, would it be okay to go with them? This is totally no life.
3: I guess it can't be safe for two unaccompanied women with small children to be traveling by car from Nairobi to Somalia. can't be safe, right?
2: They're expecting everything. They're expecting uh, an extortion of property. They're expecting a rape because there are is uh, on the road that can rape women and the gangs know that they're Somalis and on the move so they're somewhere on the road where there's no police inside so they can come and uh, jump into the buses rape women, take their their money and you know, the other thing that these families are fearing when they reach at the border between Kenya and Somalia another chapter of danger begins because it's Al-Shabaab that are lurking around the border and when you fall into the hands of Al-Shabaab you disappear forever The other thing that I was also discussing with them about these uh, seven-year-old and five-year-old kids because these are the age that Al Shabaab they really want to program the kids and teach them you know whatever um, uh, ideologies they believe and so yeah the lady looked like she was so much worried for her kids than for herself. Knowing this, these two ladies and the kids must go. Wow. It's really so you've got a lot of things to think about a lot of things to worry about
3: one night on the phone abdi asked me if i'm familiar with the migration of the wildebeest abdi wants to be clear he doesn't know about this because he's african he's a city kid he's just seen it on discovery channel clips like everyone else anyway each year thousands and thousands of wildebeest trek to a river that they have to cross in order to graze on the other side the river's infested with crocodiles and not every wildebeest makes it. But they all have to try. Abdi says he knows how they feel. Somalis are prey, he says. They're being hunted. Each evening when I phoned Abdi, I was always concerned that one night no one would answer. he would have finally taken the advice of his neighbours or been hauled off to the holding pens in Kasserani. But when he did pick up, Often he wanted to talk about things that weren't related to the Kenyan police or Al-Shabaab. We talked about his favourite movies, Rambo, that movie The Rock with Nicolas Cage, anything Schwarzenegger. We talked about his friends in the good old days in Eastleigh, when you could sit in a cafe and sip tea with camel milk. One thing I asked Abdi about, when people win the regular lottery, you always hear stories about how all of a sudden family members are really nice to them. Our cousins, they haven't spoken to in years, start calling to say hi, asking for favours. I wondered if this was the case with Abdi. Here he was, sitting in a slum, with all these refugees who were in the same terrible situation. And now he had a ticket out. Do people start treating him differently?
2: Yes, Leo, especially the girls. (laughs) This is a very good question.
3: Abdi's a practising Muslim, and so are the women he hangs out with. So normally, before, you could only visit them in a kind of formal courtship visit at their home. No having girls over to his place. No hanging out in public.
2: The difference now, since
3: I won the Green Cat lottery, is that they are trying to come to my house. He's talking about before the police raid started, when life was relatively normal in Eastleigh. Uh, you know, so I just hear
2: someone coming up the stairs and knocking at my door and saying, hey, Abdi, how have you been? And it's, and it's, it's a lady and yeah, she sits right next to your bed, and uh, it's all about the conversation. She's trying to do anything to attract you with the sweet words. Hi, do you have a girlfriend? When do you want to marry? Um, which what What type of girls do you want? Now you're going to America. You need a wife. When you go to America, please let me be the first person that you get in touch because I'm here and I don't have a husband. Are you thinking
3: about any of these girls? Maybe you know something could happen. <laughs>
2: Yes, I really am attracted to one of these girls. Uh, She's really beautiful, cute. She's Somali, but she has finished high school in Nairobi. The good thing about her is that she speaks English. She is really, I think, my type. She likes to, to read a lot, you know. She has a different character. The rest of Somali girls are very shy, but this pretty girl she gives me all this confidence, you know, and she allows me to go to her and she allows me to hang out with her um, in downtown, Nairobi, wherever possible, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I fall in love. Well, congratulations. That's
3: one piece of good news. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately for the last four weeks, we haven't seen each other. <laughs>
3: May 1st, 82 days and counting. Abdi cautiously ventures out of the apartment building for the first time in weeks. He heads downtown to central Nairobi, where life is continuing as normal. It's a stressful journey, but he's able to buy a couple of gallons of clean water and some cans of beans to bring home. He says it's amazing how good these taste to him and Hassan. He tells me he's getting more and more worried about the paperwork he still has to get together for his interview his medical records, and transcripts from his university. And there's one piece of paper that terrifies him. One of the
2: US embassy requirements is to get a police certificate, something called a certificate of good conduct. What this basically is, is proof from Kenyan law
3: enforcement that Abdi isn't a criminal. Abdi doesn't have a record, so this shouldn't be a big deal, except for the place he has to go to get the official certificate, the headquarters
2: of the Kenyan police. So that scares you a lot. Thousands of Somalis are, are being held as we speak, and they're waiting for their return to Somalia, or some of them are waiting for their return to the camps. So when I'm thinking of jumping into a bus and headed to headquarters, stepping in there and saying, hey guys, I need a police letter, my heart is already bounding. For weeks, Abdi had been talking to me about
3: this, telling me how worried he was about having to go into the belly of the beast. Finally... On a Tuesday morning in May, 77 days before his interview, he gets up early, gets together every ID he has to prove he's a legal refugee, says goodbye to Hassan, and takes a bus to police headquarters. He walks in, waits for his name to be called, and walks up to the window, where he faces a Kenyan police officer. And what he encounters is not brutal police tactics, but bureaucracy.
2: He was telling me, There's nothing that I can do but take your paper and send it to the UNHCR and then I have to wait for them to come back to me. Even it can take more than five months, he tells me. Five months.
3: Way too long for Abdi to have it in time for his interview on July 22nd. The
2: guy there was not friendly. He was really, really fierce. And I was frozen with fear. And finally, I tell him, wait, just listen to me, gentlemen. You're talking about five months, sir, but that's not what I'm talking about. If I don't get this police certificate, They will not give me or issue a visa for me, all right? So please, is it possible? And he was telling me, there's nothing that I can do for you. It's going to take more than five months.
3: There's no possibility of you going into a later position
2: with the US embassy, is there? No, it doesn't happen. If you delay your interview, that's the end of it. Some other people will grab the visa. Yeah, there's going to be a doom. It's
3: going to be a doom, Abdi says. And I felt that too. Up to this point, it seemed like if Abdi could just hold on long enough to get to his embassy interview, he'd make it to America. Now all bets were off. Now, unless this changed, there
0: was no way. Leo Hornack Abdi decides to keep going back to police headquarters every few weeks, despite the risk, despite how frightening it is, to see if one time maybe he gets a different answer. What happens next, in a minute, From Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. It's This American Life from Hourglass. Today on our program, we're hearing the story of Abdi Noor, a Somali refugee who escaped to Kenya. And then he won what amounts to a golden ticket to move to the United States and become an American, but only if he's able to make it to an interview at the U.S. Embassy. With all the right paperwork, all done perfectly, so he can cash in that golden ticket. The United Nations has reported that the number of people around the world displaced from their homes because of conflict and persecution is at an all-time high. It's over 65 million people, the largest number the UN has ever recorded. Abdi, of course, is one of those people. He's Muslim from a country with a proven history of terrorism. There are proposals, of course, in this presidential race to ban Muslims or people from countries like that from emigrating to the United States, even if, like Abdi, they are running from terrorists and aren't terrorists themselves. Anyway, Leo Hornick continues the story.
3: May 12th, T-71 days to Abdi's embassy interview. Abdi gets on a bus home from school and this time runs into another danger. Not the police, not al-Shabaab themselves, but the fear of al-Shabaab.
2: The bus is so crowded with people. And there are these two ladies watching me.
3: Abdi looks round and realises he's the only Somali. People can tell Somalis look different and a Somali with a backpack on, on a public bus. He knows what people are thinking.
2: They're watching my hands. They're thinking, like, when is this guy putting his hand into that bag and start to to blow up? These ladies then started shouting at the driver. Have you made sure there's no bomb in that bag? I had to fight back, and I say... Listen, lady, wait a minute. I'm not do you think I am, you know? Um. No, there's no bum here. And I'm not one of those people. I'm a student I'm carrying my books. It's quite embarrassing. And at the same time, I feel fear. Because everyone in there had a very cautious eyes on me.
3: In Kenya, because people don't trust the police, mobs will take justice into their own hands. For example, If a shopkeeper yells thief on the street, strangers might grab the person and beat them. And it's not unheard of for people to die this way. A man in the back of the bus chimes in. Why is he there? He shouts.
2: Kick him out. I tried as much as I can to calm them down. And they were ignoring me. And then the driver turns his head and tells me, boy, step out of my car. All right, call the police. And you know, We weren't in Little Mogadishu, we weren't in downtown, we were in the middle. And in the middle, what I mean in the middle, is exactly the Bangani police station.
3: This is the police station Somali terrorist bombed
2: two weeks earlier. What do you think, if they kick me out there with a bag standing there near the police station, what's going to happen? They can shoot me to death. I said to the driver, wait a minute, you want to know what's in here? And then I had to unzip my bag and bring everything out. The books, the papers showed him. The pen, the student ID, everything I brought out. And then I hung the bag upside down and showed him, do you see anything in there? And then it looked like the driver was kind of satisfied. He looked straight and he drove the car a little bit faster.
3: Four days later, May 16th, 67 days to the interview, Al-Shabaab blows up two buses. It's a big deal. They were in a central market, at least 12 dead, more than 70 injured. Abdi's sure the police will be out in force, and he hunkers down at home for a while. Hey, Abdi, what's up? How's it going?
2: Leo, it's good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad at all. Could you tell me the date and the weekend start? Yeah. It's May 17, 2014. And last night after that explosion, there was a massive operation. in Little They've knocked at our, our house. It was like two last night. We haven't opened. They just kept talking and they were thinking like there's nobody here. And then they have moved. So what, hang on. So they
3: kind of, if they just don't get any answer, then they, they think it's empty.
2: Yes. The, the thing is that this is not like before. Now there are no more people at all. have gone, that's what I think. It was like 50% before now, it's 80%. Most buildings are empty. So these days when they keep knocking and nobody's opening, they're thinking like people here have moved. So yes, that's what we did last night. We just, none of us opened. There was no light in our house because these guys, they're listening to the movements. They're watching if there's any movement on the windows. They are seeing if there's a light or something. Just something like that shows them there's a light here. So that's what we do. We don't show there's a life. It's totally blackouts. Good
1: evening, Leo.
3: Hey, Abdi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, Leo. How are you? Good. I'm pleased to hear it. I know that you had a a tough, uh, very difficult evening. Do you want to say what the date is and tell me what happened? Uh,
2: May 19. Now the time is 8.45. Uh, all I can say, Leo, is that I haven't slept for the last, I can say, 30 hours or more because the, uh, the police rate has increased. Uh, they've, ca- they've come and taken so many people from our neighborhood, and we have realized that this, this is not the ordinary police. They've changed something. These guys, they don't negotiate on cash. Everything has changed. They're not going into any negotiation at all. They throw you in the back of the tracks and drive away so many so many refugees. And how are you finding
3: last... this out? How you how do you know this?
2: But I told you already about that girl. Uh <clears throat> she's my I can say she's my girlfriend now. Um but she has an a Kenyan national ID. The the text message she sent me here, it says, Hey, they have been with me for like fifteen minutes where she was sleeping, her room. And one of them said, you're not supposed to be a Somali, you're a Kenyan, so you can be my wife. That's one of the policemen. What one of the policemen said when she showed them her Kenyan national ID, I'm taking all the Somalis, so you will be lonely here. Just come and uh, you will be safe. You will live with me. And she said, please leave me alone. They took everyone else in the compound where she lived, who had a refugee ID. She lived with other girls, and the other girls have, uh, don't have the national ID, so they forced the girls out. They have finally forced the girls out.
3: I tried to confirm this with his girlfriend, but she didn't want to talk to me about it. Abdi says the police took her roommates that night, but left her behind. So what,
2: she's alone now? What? What's the situation? She is alone, yes. So Leo, yes, that last night, Hazan and I, we didn't know where to go. We could hear all those sounds, the knock of our gate, the shouts, the bullets that were being fired into the doors of people. At one moment, I was thinking, like, go under your bed. And the other moment, I was thinking, like, if they find you here, they're going to kill you. I was like, this is, I don't know. I've never been in such a stressful situation.
3: So if you were to look outside the building right now, what would you see? Leo,
2: to be honest. I'm not asking Leo, you
3: to. I know it's dangerous, but what, just, if I help me imagine.
2: Leo, to be honest, uh, if I just look through my window, there's nothing that I can see. I'm telling you, there's nothing that I can see. All the lights are off. Even there's no street light here now. It's totally, totally dark. There's only this light from coming from the laptop. You have to put lots of things on the on the window so that they cannot even see. Uh, that's what I'm doing right now, so that they cannot even see the light from uh, my laptop. But Leo, I don't know. I... I I don't know why they come midnight. Why is that? Uh, because they don't want us to go to sleep? Why Why don't they come during the day? They usually come the same time, two thirty, two thirty. you know. And that's exactly when Somali women and children are all asleep and they, these guys are coming, they kick the door open, telling you, wake up, to the rest. wake up, why are you sleeping? Uh-huh. They're coming back every night. What the hell is going on? Why don't they, at least if they're doing an operation, why don't they come at one time and finish the the whole thing? You know, they're killing us. They they are killing us by fearing. In this
3: situation, it must be easy for al-Shabaab to get supporters, I guess. People who have some, maybe a little bit of sympathy
2: with their ideas. Did you read or did you hear about the young men who were deported from Kenya to Somalia have already joined al-Shabaab? No, I didn't see that. They are coming from the border already, attacking Kenya as revenge because the Kenyans have really mistreated so many women and children and so many young men. Kenya is really giving a very good opportunity to these Al-Shabaab guys because they're getting what they wanted. They're getting the young men that they were looking for. Yeah.
3: Well, I wish I could say more, but I think there's nothing more I can say right now.
1: No, all I need is some sleep. I don't know if you can feel right. that. But I, my can, eyes I can, I can. I can
3: hear you feel very stressed. I hope you get some sleep and keep safe as well, as safe as you can Uh, with your good luck. I mean, and see you. Good luck to you too. Days go by. Abdi and Hassan do their best to keep their spirits up and entertain themselves. They read books. They watch Lost and Walking Dead. It's one of the weird quirks of Eastleigh that even if food runs short, you can still have good broadband internet. They even build makeshift barbells out of old milk cans they've filled with sand and stones and start working out. One, two, three. And they do one of Abdi's favourite things.
2: You want me to go and get... uh...
1: Yes, Okay. Listen
2: to music.
3: Back in Somalia, if Al-Shabaab caught you with MP3s on your phone, they would flog you, or they could even kill you for it. They believe most music is sinful. But Abdi always took a risk. He kept his music collection on a secret SIM card hidden under the mattress.
2: Uh, This song called uh, uh, Curlest Whisper gives me some good memories because in Somalia we really had... Very few western songs, and uh, w- there was one time that they got this song and made it into Somali. They translated, uh, wow, yeah, yeah. The uh, I, I would love to play you that. I don't know if it's let me think where we can get it. Uh, yeah, uh. <laughs> To be very honest, I have uh, so many songs on my phone, but most of them are very, very old. I really enjoy them because I remember my father and the beautiful days in Somalia. He used to play these songs, because if he had this big radio, I'm talking about the 90s when I was a pretty young guy. And my father used to sit like this, he's leaning against the wall, his big radio is right next to him. And next to him is a flask full of hot tea with his cat. And the cat is a a small leaves that Somalis eat as a stimulant. And next to him is also a, a bowl full of milk. Oh my God, my father, when he has all that stuff, he's in heaven. He's smiling. He gets his finger on the tape and he makes us quiet. He says, shut up and just enjoy.
3: During all this, Abdi did leave the house sometimes but only for a very specific reason, either to go to an important class he couldn't miss or to go to the police headquarters and try his luck again getting the certificate he needs for his interview. Then, on May 29th, with 54 days and counting, Abdi sends me this recording.
2: Hi, uh, this is Abdi. (sighs) I have uh, great news to declare, so let me just... I'm so excited. Oh my god. I'm really different today. <laughs> my police clearance is done. Let me say that again. My police clearance is done. I'm looking at my 10 fingers, they're all black. Because I, I'm still wearing uh, the black ink for the fingerprints. And I'm not sorry about it. I smell the U.S. visa. I smell it. I smell it. I see July 22 coming. This was the only problem? I dealt with it. It's done.
3: At this point, Abdi's a shoo-in. It's almost hard to believe after all the obstacles, but he calls up the embassy, talks through all the paperwork, and they tell him he's good to go, and they'll see him on the 22nd. And his tune on our nightly phone calls totally changes.
2: From this... My heart broke, you know. I'm feeling like, okay, I'm not, you're not going to make it to this. Now I'm in love with the American culture. I'm in love with their beautiful roads and streets, you know, houses. But I'm in love with everything, everything in the United States that's going on.
3: Do you sometimes worry that maybe you're so in love with this place that it might disappoint you when you reach there? Many people who reach America have a very tough time.
2: Mm-hmm. No, um, I don't worry about that because I know whatever I have been through, they've never been through. I've been a refugee, I've been hiding from police, I've been hiding from Shabab, I've been hiding from so many armed groups. I have had enough trouble, I have had enough disappointment. America's an opportunity, so I will take my, my chances.
3: And America's an opportunity not just for Abdi. But his whole family
2: my mother is in somalia Um, she's in mogadishu the most dangerous city in the world and so every call that's coming from mogadishu i pick up really with uh, shaky hands
3: abdi hasn't seen his mother in more than three years she lives in a tiny run-down shack made of corrugated tin and she doesn't always have access to enough food or clean water if abdi gets to america he hopes he can make some money and even if he can't protect her from violence, he can at least help her to get a better place with clean water and three meals a day.
2: I spoke to my mother yesterday evening. She asked, boy, when are you going out of that country? And I said, mom, I got 52 days. 52 days, I need your prayers. And she said, oh my God, he's got 52 days. I'm praying for you, boy. And I know like I am right now. She's counting the days. It, it's going to be something like that will make her proud, that will make her survive. She's really sending all her prayers towards me.
3: Abdi's older brother Hassan has also applied for the visa lottery. Like Abdi, he's worked for years on his English. He came to Kenya years before Abdi. Now he's getting ready to live alone again. Hassan, is there part of you that thinks, you know, just a little part of you, that is a bit jealous about Abdi? Because you both worked hard, uh, and Abdi has got this not through hard work, but by luck.
1: Actually, if I tell you I don't have the least jealousy at all, if we get two of us visa to get out of here, it will even be better. If someone told me right now, there is one visa, which one of you will take? I would set up, because he's new to this country. And I know how we are so fearful at night, and I know how he can't sleep at night. For him to get visa, it's my biggest pleasure. Yeah, there's luck there, but luck can be fair.
3: June 4th, 48 days and counting Abdi goes into the stairwell to use the bathroom and finds a police officer standing there who calls for backup the officer doesn't ask for a bribe he lets Abdi go Abdi has no idea why June 8th, 44 days to go Abdi tells me apparently the police have started raiding during the day which is a change he avoided them because he was at class June 15th, 37 days to go Abdi hears on the radio that dozens of masked al-Shabaab gunmen bombed a police station, stole its weapons and went on a rampage in a town on the coast, killing at least 48 people. Abdi and Hassan brace for more police raids.
2: July 7th, 15 days to go. Leo, I'm telling you, they have chased me with machetes, with stones. Abdi, you're kidding. It was only two... Yeah, it was only two hours ago.
3: When Abdi and I speak, he's shaken up. He says he just tried to visit the mosque for the first time in weeks. It's right down the block.
2: It was like only 10 steps away from my house and then there's this like 50 armed young man. They were armed with machetes and with rocks in their hands and they started chasing me and throwing those stones and then I started running towards the mosque.
3: The mob was a bunch of Kenyans attacking Somalis at random on the streets.
2: Yeah, they caught up with other... They were beating these guys and I couldn't look back... I threw oh, wow. myself, I threw myself into the mosque, and then somebody closed the, the gate. And um, the sheikh clerk, uh, mm. he was like, "Please calm down. If these people want to kill us, I think we will go. We will all go to heaven because Allah says, if we die in the mosque, that's it. We're going straight to the heaven." Did you expect to die? I did. July
3: seventeenth. Five days to go. The woman sending him money from America wires cash for his interview fee, $320. And then finally, July 21st, one day to go.
2: It's actually not days, it's now hours left to my interview.
3: 10 hours and 53 minutes to be precise. It's at 7.30 tomorrow morning.
2: I'm not going to bed anymore, I'm not going to sleep, I'm sure by that. Tomorrow is going to change my life. It's going to change my life to be the happiest person on earth. It's going to change my life to be the the most devastated man on earth. So it's these two. Tomorrow night, I'm coming back to this room. Breaking everything. Smashing everything right here. Because I'm happy or I'm angry. In both situations, I'll break these things, I know. I'll just (laughs) give a punch into my laptop.
3: (laughs) Uh I have to say, Abdi, I'm I'm really uh excited for you.
2: I'm just wishing you
3: good luck. Uh you know, with all my heart. Thank you. Thank I'm you. gonna leave you and let you prepare and can't wait to speak tomorrow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wish I would talk to you smiling, not really uh, that, I think
3: that you will be smiling, that's what I expect.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you very much.
3: Okay, so um, while I was brushing my teeth this morning I got a text message and it was from Abdi hi very bad news they gave me a red paper that said visa rejected and um, yeah we we text messaged a backwards and forwards and um, he the last message he sent to me which was a few hours ago was uh, this is my worst day on earth. I couldn't get hold of Abdi for a day. When I finally did talk to him, he walked me through what happened. Abdi arrived hours early. The waiting room was filled with other lottery winners. One by one they were called in, and one by one, Abdi says, they came out grinning. Then Abdi's number was called. This was it. Window nine.
2: And there's this American lady, she was a black American, to be honest. I was really happy, because somebody already told me that the ladies are good than the men. So if lady interviews you, you get the visa. So I was thinking like, all right, man, you got you got it. So the first thing she said was, please, can you raise your right hand and swear that everything that you will say is the truth?
3: Abdi did. He answered a few
2: simple questions. And then she was, she was busy writing something on, uh, on her computer. I could feel that my legs were shivering. Hmm. So... This is the moment, man. This is the moment that you have been waiting for. And then she said, uh, so tell me, where did you go to um, high school? And I said, Mogadishu, Somalia.
3: Where did you go to college, she asked. He told her his university in Nairobi.
2: But she said, the transcript that you have here does not have a signature. Did you know that?
3: One of his school transcripts didn't have a signature. She took out a pink piece of paper and on the bottom wrote two words. Missing transcript. She handed it to Abdi and said, "Sorry, I can't give you the visa."
2: I was looking into her eyes like, "Please come back to me and say, "Hey, I've changed my mind. Please, please, God, I need your help. I need I need luck today." But the lady didn't
3: change her mind. She picked up her microphone and called the next number. <music> Dazed, Abdi walked outside and sat alone under a tree outside the embassy.
2: Because I needed to calm myself and bring myself together. I sat there, I was holding my head, and um, I was looking at this whole world as as the worst place to live. I told myself, hey, are you rejected? Is this real, or am I dreaming? I thought it was like a dream. No, we can't do this, we
1: can't do this.
3: The embassy told him he could send them a signed transcript if he wanted. But they told him not to come back to the embassy. They'd be in touch, maybe. Abdi sent the transcript, even though he was sure he'd missed his chance.
2: Hello, this is Abdi Noor. Uh, is the... Uh the 1st of August, 2014, an email got into my inbox. It was Immigrant Visa Department at the U.S. Embassy and it tells me from our records, your document has been received and your visa will be sent by tomorrow. Oh my God, this email made me jump. Off from my bed and hit my head onto the onto the ceiling. It's issued. God, I just looked at it again. It's issued. What the hell's going on? It's issued. This big smile was on my face. I've never ever had such a big smile. Never ever ever ever. ever.
3: hey you abdi (laughs) (laughs) oh my
2: god how are
1: you
3: (laughs) are you recording Ah. this first please before you say don't say anything first please be recording i am recording yeah okay great (laughs) how does it feel to be the owner of a u.s Mm -hmm. visa Mm
2: -hmm. what was the question again
3: (laughs) sorry (laughs) you're on a different planet
2: Oh. <laughs> what does it feel like to be a green card holder? Um, it feels like the dream has just become real. I don't know what to say but it it feels like I am not a refugee. No, oh, this is not a refugee that was hiding from the police. <laughs> I'm a very citizen. <laughs>
3: There was one thing about the approval of Abdi's visa that made us wonder. The day Abdi's visa was issued, before he heard the news, I'd actually called the US Embassy in Nairobi. I said I was a reporter doing a story about Abdi and that I was curious about how long their decision would take because of my deadline. The woman I spoke to said she didn't know. For nine days, Abdi hadn't heard anything. Two hours after my call, he got the good news. We asked the State Department if my phone call influenced their decision about Abdi's visa, and they told us, quote, "The journalist's call played no role in the timing of the visa issuance. Any visa process coinciding with a press inquiry is merely a coincidence." I can't prove anything, but that is at odds with what the woman on the phone told me back when I initially called the embassy. She said that now that they knew I was doing a story about Abdi, they would try and expedite the process, even though I told her that wasn't why I was calling. And that I was only asking for information. We spoke with eight immigration lawyers, all experienced with the diversity visa lottery, and they all said my call probably bumped Abdi's application to the top of the pile that day. And with the lottery, because they give out a finite number of visas by a hard deadline, that can be the difference between making it to the US or not. On August 11th, 2014, Hassan took Abdi to Nairobi airport. Abdi's now living in a small town in Maine. The woman who'd been supporting him is putting him up with her family. About a month in, I give him a call. Yes, Leo. Hi, Abdi. How is it going? Good to hear from
2: you. It's going incredibly good. <laughs> so can I tell you some of the surprises that strikes me most. Uh, There's a bus box. Do you know where the bus box is?
3: He's saying post box, mailbox. It's on the opposite side of the road, Leo. Can you believe that? Abdi says he's expecting his social security card and green card in the mail. Are you telling me that everything will be delivered into that
2: little box? Anybody can grab it?
3: The idea that a United States green card could sit in an unlocked mailbox on a public road blew his mind. (laughs) That was 10 months ago. Abdi spent the winter installing insulation on roofs around Maine. He really wants to apply for college, but it's hard because he sends a lot of his money back home. Hassan's now married, still in university, still living in Eastleigh. Abdi keeps in touch with the woman he was seeing back in Nairobi. She's still asking him to bring her to the US and marry her. But he's not sure he wants to do that. One time, Abdi asked her straight up if she'd be into him if he didn't have a green card. And she was honest. She said no, which Abdi appreciated. He knows Somali women don't have a lot of options for leaving Eastleigh.
2: Part of me is still in Nairobi. It's still in Eastleigh. It was my brothers there, my friends are there.
3: Abdi says since he left, his friends have this new ritual. When they go to the tea shop they all used to hang out at, which is just some tables and chairs a woman sets up on the street outside her building, they'll order an extra cup of tea for Abdi.
2: That's what they do, and they drink it for me. Like, if, if there are two or three people, they just take sips, sending me a photo of the, of the tea and telling me, that's your tea. And then the next picture is the tea is empty, and they're like, you just drank it? So I can feel that, you know, I'm right there. And then, actually, it's sometimes amusing, because I'm at the Dunkin' Donuts drinking a colada, And my friend sends me a picture of the nice tea that we used to have at the tea shop. And then I send him a picture of the colada that I'm drinking.
3: So it's kind of like you guys are still going to the same tea shop. It's just one of them is a Dunkin' Donuts in Maine. That's actually right. Sometimes, he says, the Kenyan police walk in and the next photo is an empty tea shop. Empty chairs, half full cups, everyone gone. Meanwhile, at the Dunkin' Donuts, sometimes cops walk in and say hi to him or good morning. It's amazing, he says.
0: Leo Hornack with the BBC. It's been a year since we first ran this story. Abdi is still in Maine, working as an interpreter for the court system there, doing some writing. An op-ed for The Washington Post, and he's working on a book. our program was produced today by Brian Reed, with Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffe Walt, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Manhevar, Robin Semian, Alyssa Ship, Julie Snyder, and Nancy Updike. Editing help for today's show from Joel Lovell. Production help from Emmanuel Jochi. Our technical director is Matt Tierney. Thanks today to BBC Radio Current Affairs, Hugh Levinson, and Bridget Harney, and BBC's Crossing Continents radio show, where a version of Leo's story first aired. Also to PRI's The World, where Leo is a producer. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he was giving me a ride home last night. And I reached out to the radio, which, of course, was playing our station. And before I could even touch the tuner, Tori is so hardcore public radio, he screeched the car over to the curb. And he tells me, boy,
2: step out of my car. Alright, call the police I'm Ira
0: Glass, back next week With more stories of this American life
2: Roll the dice, life is a breeze
1: When I lose right now oh. I'm being on my chips When I'm broken down oh. I've been brushing off my kids